for our National Faith and Life team. And so when we've been walking through our Confession of Faith, uh, Ken leads the team that's charged with stewarding that well. And so even this morning we spent time praying for him, mm. praying for them in the work uh, that, that the Lord has charged and invited you into. And uh, so we've, we have covered every article of the 18, except for one, and that is uh, 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 Article 14, which is on the sanctity of life. And so we've just been uh, richly blessed by many guests with lots of differing areas of expertise. And Ken, I think you told me this is the only article that you had not currently been invited to preach on. And so we're getting just fresh material here, Jericho, uh, in, in this category. Uh, but we're so grateful uh, for you and for the work that God has called you. you to do uh, in this space. So welcome here to Jericho. Thank you. All right. Uh, thank you very much, Brad. And well in this moment and uh, it's great for me to be back here I have never been at your new building and I just think wow this is such a huge blessing I believe in your life amen any amends to that like okay so I, I hope that's your experience now I bring you greetings from the Life Center which is our multicultural church that Karen and I Karen's here this morning that we are members of and they're meeting this morning with 18 flags out front and flags inside to represent that God's family comes from every tribe and nation. And uh, we have people from all the places where those flags are. And we put them out front and people call us the flag church. And it's actually kind of fun because they come in, they say, what's going on? Is this an embassy? And I say, yeah, it sort of is. And you know, the only flag we have in the front is the cross. And that's what brings all the flags together. So I'm glad to bring you greetings from there. I also bring you greeting from, greetings from Columbia Bible College where I have been teaching for the last 31 years and have loved virtually every moment of it. Uh, if you know anything about marking uh, papers, you'll know if you're a teacher that that isn't the greatest moment. Amen? There's another amen? Okay, we have some amens from people who understand that. And I also bring you greetings from the Canadian Conference of MB Churches where I am temporarily... Uh, serving, they're based in Winnipeg, the conference, but I'm serving out of Abbotsford and I'll be there uh, till Christmas. I've taken an unpaid leave of absence from Columbia uh, so I can serve there and Columbia's been really gracious. Now our topic this morning is, in my opinion, quite overwhelming, uh, sanctity of life. I mean, I don't know if you feel that, but I certainly do. Uh, it's overwhelming and a little terrifying at the same time because it covers things like abortion, suicide, violence against others, and also um, medical assistance and dying questions. And so when I first uh, you know, started actually thinking about this, I, I went through all the seven stages of, uh, you know, all the seven stages of grieving. The first one was shock, like, I, what? I didn't really do this, did I? Uh, denial, like, Where's that email? Did they ask for this article or was it a different article? And then I moved a long time into anger. Like what was, like what was Brad Sumner thinking? Like did I do something wrong to him? Did I park in his parking spot? Did I not like one of his oops, many social media posts? Did I forget that? Like why did he pick me to do this? So anyway, this morning, I'm not sure what I did to deserve this, but I will try to provide some biblical reflections on this super important and impactful topic. Now you'll notice I said biblical reflections. I know you're preaching through the MB Confession of Faith, but the MB Confession of Faith is not ultimately authoritative for us. Okay, you don't have to say amen to that, but I hope you understand. I mean ultimately. Okay, I affirm, I teach, I live by, 
and I very much appreciate the MB Confession of Faith, but it's not ultimately my authority. Okay, does it make sense? Jesus is ultimately the authority. And Jesus is the one I want to listen to and obey above all else. And uh, Jesus right now is on the throne, right, behind, right beside the throne of God, okay, what we call heaven. Now, Jesus then is the focus of my life, the focus of my worship, the focus of my vocation. And so um, this past week I was taking a class and someone was asking this question. It had to do with male and female in Christ, it had to do with, you know, what does it look like singleness today versus singleness in the new creation? We'll all be single. And people often say things like, I, I, you know, I'm excited, especially people who have lost loved ones, say things like, I'm excited about you know, heaven because I'll be reunited with the spouse or reunited with his child or my parents. And it often gives them comfort, which I don't disagree with. But if we are for one second more enamored and more excited about being reunited with loved ones rather than being united with Christ, we have disordered affections. And so I'm not saying we shouldn't look forward to these loved ones, but our Highest priority has to be now and in the future, Jesus. Amen? Okay, so I hope that's an amen moment for you. And so in the present, contrary to what some people say, Jesus has, in a sense, like Elvis, left the building. Okay, does that make sense? Jesus, when he ascended, he actually left earth and has now on the throne and has sent us the Holy Spirit. So when people say things like Jesus is in my heart or I feel Jesus today, they're actually technically referring to the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is in this room before we arrived. The Holy Spirit, when we ask him to fill us as believers, is in our hearts. When Jesus said, I will never leave you, or I will be with you always, he said in Matthew 28, he means the Holy Spirit will be with us always. Okay, so I hope you understand that when we say Jesus is among us, we mean the Holy Spirit is among us. And I, I was talking to a prof, well, my, one of my profs at Regent College, Rick Watts, from a Pentecostal background, he said, you should never leave and leave your house until you've prayed for the filling of the Spirit. I just love that line. Like, why do we think we're going to leave our house victorious and excited? And Jesus, through the Holy Spirit, is our power. And so Karen and I, every morning, we try to have coffee every morning together, and we've been praying, Lord, fill us with your Spirit. And then we actually identify what that looks like. Because you can't be filled with the Spirit until, unless you are demonstrating your day love. Say with me, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Those things are evidence that you're being filled with the Spirit. And if you don't evidence those things, then you should be cautious about saying, I'm being filled with the Spirit today. All right, so the Holy Spirit then reflects absolutely the will of Jesus. Amen? absolutely the will of Jesus. And it's this Holy Spirit that the Bible says inspired the Bible. This is what 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 says. All scripture is God-breathed. The Greek word is theopneustos. It has been breathed out, we believe, by the Holy Spirit. And so we shouldn't pit Jesus against the Bible because the Holy Spirit inspired the Bible. Therefore, you shouldn't say, Jesus is what I follow. I don't follow the Bible. The Bible was inspired by the Holy Spirit who follows whom? Jesus. So when you read the Bible, even the difficult parts, you should be asking the question, how in the world does this reflect Jesus in this moment? 
Now, this morning, then, I'm not really preaching in Article 14. I hope you got that sense. Okay? I'm preaching on the Bible that is behind Article 14. And so I, I, believe, I do that very consciously, and I've even put the Bible above the confession, just in case, symbolically, you'd be a little bit concerned about that. All right? So the Bible is over the confession of faith in our world. Now, it seems pretty crazy to think that this ancient Bible written by ancient people, could actually have something to say to us, smart people. Like, I can look at you, and I, this is a smart group, Brad. I don't know how you got them all together. Okay, I can tell this already just by looking in their eyes. These people are brilliant. And so the question is, how could an ancient book actually guide us on complicated questions? And now, you know, we have to decide either our confession of faith is written by ancient people with not much knowledge about the things we know more about, or else Jesus inspired this, the King of kings and Lord of lords, and we have to figure that out. And this Bible can actually guide us. Now, I'm going to be asking you a few times uh, this morning to turn to someone and ask them a few things or respond a bit. Like, I'm a teacher, okay? I've been doing this for 34 years, and you don't have to ever invite me back if you don't like this, okay? But teachers are teachers, amen? Right? That's just the way we operate. Someone asked me one time, like, how come every time you write articles and stuff, it's long? And I say, I can't even write, Karen, I love you, without a page and a half. Like, it's just the way we operate. All right? So be aware of that. So I'm, I'm not going to try to go over time, so don't worry. All right. Now, um, first of all, by reading the, the Confession of Faith, you should know that behind the Confession of Faith, all 18 articles, and I can only congratulate you for doing all 18. I know some churches that have done 18 and three, like three years in a row, they did kind of like parts of them, but you did it all. Like I should have a certificate today of completion for each of you. Amen? Like that would be, okay, after free coffee. <laughs> okay. Now, the Confession of Faith you will not understand the confession of faith, and I know all of you now do understand it, without you knowing something about the background to the confession of faith. There are four big things that are behind every article. And if you don't understand these four big things, this will seem partially nonsensical and sort of strange. And I know people who look at our confession of faith, this is just nuts. Okay, don't say amen. Okay? This is just nuts because they don't understand the four big things behind it. First of all, one of the presuppositions of our confession of faith is that we have big theology. I use that word very carefully to mean we have a huge understanding of God. We have a God in our confession of faith that is not your spiritual friend who walks beside you every day kind of encouraging you and giving you hugs. We have a God who is on the throne, who is the loving creator. We have a God who is a just king but never forget he is king. The first thing about him is king. If he were to walk in this morning, we wouldn't run up and give him a high five and say, finally you're here, give me a hug, I've been lonely. We would walk, hopefully, all turn to him and bow in worship, amen? Because he is not simply our little spiritual friend who helps us. He is the king ruling and reigning over everything in the world. Now, that is the first thing, and because of that, we bow in worship. And I would hope and pray that any church associated with our denomination would always begin with worship. 
Like whatever we say, we begin in worship. And if you don't have worship as your first response, the confession of faith makes no sense. So I hope you understand that. Our first posture is worship, okay? The second thing is that our MB confession does not assume that Christianity is simply about someone saying yes to some tract or some message. It doesn't assume that somehow now you're going to go to heaven one day, although those are true, that one day this is going to happen. Our confession of faith says no, something much bigger is happening. God is writing a big redemption story. And it starts in Genesis 1 and ends in Revelation 22. And we are looking forward to the restoration of all things. And this big redemption story is not simply about you. Like I, I find this all the time. Like people say, oh, it's about me. I don't have to go to church because it's about me. It's about me. And I'm like, you don't understand the redemption story of God. God is a big God writing a big story. Why don't you tell someone beside you, that, you know, like two things is really hard to remember for most people, right, today? So if you could tell them what are the two things about our confession, I'm going to give you 30 seconds to explain that to them. I'm not going to say it again because that would be like too obvious. Okay, go ahead. All right, just, we're, are we post-COVID? Can you give them a fist pump if they were good? Okay, just get your elbow if you're concerned. Okay. So what I was saying is that our confession of faith assumes what? Big theology, big God. And the big God we have is writing a big what? Story. And that big story goes all the way through scripture and God is building a kingdom and that kingdom is beautiful and amazing beyond anything we could imagine. And I hear people saying, oh, like, the bottom line behind this is that God isn't profoundly concerned with your happiness. Like, I hate to tell you this. Uh, you may not want to come again to church. If less people come next week, Brad, I'm sorry. But you need to know that God does not sit around every day saying, I hope these people are happy. Because your happiness is not the central priority. You just did not pray and say, here's the Lord's Prayer. Our Father, may I be happy. May I not suffer. May I have all the things that my heart desires. No, that, the, the prayer that Jesus taught us is may your what? Kingdom come to earth as it is in heaven. And so God's kingdom is about this, I mean, God's vision and story is about this kingdom coming. And we are invited to join the kingdom. We invite every neighbor, hopefully you have, to join this beautiful and amazing story that's bigger than you, bigger than your happiness. So our, our confession has big theology and big story, and then because of that, it has big mission. It doesn't have a small mission it has a big mission. And the big mission, according to our confession, is centered on the church. The church is the center of God's big mission. There's a lot of Christians who don't see the church as important. It's kind of like if you want to go there, if it helps your spiritual life, if you feel Jesus, then go. But our confession of faith has four articles out of 18 on the church. And you'll notice things like baptism, which you would think would be a personal salvation thing. Guess what section they're in in our confession? They're in the church section. 
Notice that the Lord's Supper is not in your own personal, like I feel close to Jesus when I take these elements. It's in the church section. So according to our story, the big uh, mission is centered on the church proclaiming and declaring and living out the kingdom in the world. It's a huge and amazing restoration of God's good creation. And finally, you might notice that our confession has no authority except the authority that comes from the Bible. The fourth element then is the trustworthiness of the Bible. Our MB confession believes that the Holy Spirit guided the writers of the Bible to give us something that transcends all history and has something to say to us. The Bible's not simplistic. We don't just pop a few verses out of every, anywhere. We study it carefully. We look at the original languages. We study together as a group. But yet we believe that the Bible is trustworthy. And if not, we're on a different path. Now, if you want to track with these articles... And if you want to track today with Article 14, you should know that Article 14 presupposes a big theology, big God, big story, big mission, and lastly, trustworthy Bible. And if you don't understand that, this what we're going to read today, it might, might be kind of sounding crazy. Now, let's begin then with our biblical foundation for our understanding of sanctity of life. So if you can stand with me, I'm hoping that there's going to be, there is something going to come on the, on the screen. And I'm going to ask you to read this out loud. Now, when you read this out loud, like, let's not just rip through it and say, like, I'm trying to show off to my neighbors what a good reader I am. Okay, that is a spiritual gift. But the point is, like, as you're reading, and maybe you don't want to read, maybe you say, I can't read and think at the same time. So if you're one of those... God has a plan for your life. Amen? Okay, and that's good. But if you can read as well, that'd be great. But then think about this. And as you're reading, think, how does this, what is interesting, what is new, what is challenging in this text? And how does this relate to the questions we're addressing today? So let's begin. This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created. When the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. Now, no shrub had yet appeared on the earth, and no plant had yet sprung up. For the Lord God had not yet sent rain on the earth, and there was no one to work the ground. But streams came up from the earth and watered the whole surface of the ground. Then the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. Now, the Lord God... Okay, we were there. Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east, in Eden, and there he put the man he had formed. The Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. In the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A, a river watering... It winds through the entire land of Havilah, where there is gold. The gold of that land is good. Aromatic resin and onyx are also there. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It winds through the entire land of Cush. The name of the third river is the Tigris. It runs along the east side of Asher. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. 
The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat from it, you will certainly die. The Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the wild animals and all the birds in the sky. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the name man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds in the sky, and all the wild animals. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and then closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. The man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. Adam and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. This is the word of the Lord. Now stay standing and turn to someone, if you don't, and make sure no one's left alone, and just say who you are, give your name, and then say what's kind of new, interesting, or challenging. Maybe you have a question about this or something you didn't notice. Whenever you read the Bible, it should be like cornflakes. You might say, what's that about? I, I ate cornflakes as a child because it was the cheapest thing. My parents didn't have a lot of money, so we ate cornflakes. I always said it was better to chew on the box. It had more flavor. But nonetheless, cornflakes came out recently with an ad that said, cornflakes, try it again for the first time. Some of you maybe aren't old enough for that. But they came out with that, and I thought, that's kind of like the Bible. Every time you read it, read it again as if it's the first time. So I encourage you to think that and talk to someone near you. What do you see as new, interesting, or challenging, or maybe a question you didn't think of that was there now? I'll give you a few minutes so go ahead and talk. All right, feel free to sit down. Thank the person you're talking to for their brilliant insights. Encourage them in the Lord. 
Now, just call anything out, something you notice, something interesting. I'll start by saying, I find it very interesting that you'll notice that come from the Garden of Eden, guess what happens? Water flows in four directions. What does that tell you about the Garden of Eden? It actually must be a hill of some sort. You ever get that idea? That it's actually, it's the water from the Garden of Eden is flowing and giving life all over the place. So this is a holy mountain, the Garden of Eden actually. Isn't that beautiful? Okay, so just thoughts, reflections, comments. Yeah, golden onyx. Right? What else? Sorry? Everything comes out of the ground. That's interesting. Even the people. The dirt. I always tell people in my class, like, you should tell the person beside you, you're just a bag of dirt. Okay? Because that's actually very true. We are bags of dirt, and later today we'll find we're actually glorious bags of dirt. Not just bags of dirt, but we are. And, the, and as soon as you forget, you start getting really proud, you, you know, Karen would tell me, you're just a bag of dirt. I think, thank you very much for reminding me. But that's true, amen? And then if you feel really crappy about yourself, then someone needs to come and say, you are a glorious bag of dirt. Okay? All right, anyone else? Isn't that amazing? Yeah, and guess where those trees are? In the middle of the garden. In the middle of the garden. What else? Sorry, bone of my bones, yes. I mean, that old book they had, you know, men are from Mars, women are from Venus, or whatever it was called. Like, actually, this doesn't agree with that. Amen? This actually says you belong together. Like, you need a church that has people belonging together. That's, I think, the case here. All right, I'm going to move on, but you can keep those thoughts and questions. Maybe you have time at the end. Now, also, they felt no shame, by the way, right? You'll notice that later, as soon as they sin, they feel shame from each other, and, they want, and God covers them. They feel shame in all kinds of directions. And so that's kind of an interesting thing. Shame is, is not present here. And when you think about how shame affects people, Right? This is not part of God's original creation. Now, the text, uh, this text has been used to support our central theological conviction about the sanctity of life, and that is that all of life is rightfully owned by God. Can we say amen to that? All of life is rightfully owned by God. Uh, just like the creator God, just like an artist paints something, creates something, uh, it's owned by the artist. Even if they sell the work to someone, they still rightfully have control to some degree over that. And so God rightfully owns this beautiful artistic creation. God is the artist who takes and forms and breathes into humans. You notice that the woman, even though she comes from the, I, the, the word rib is very disputed. I would argue it's probably the side. It's not really meant to be a rib. You're not missing a rib, guys. I, I don't hope not. So it's more like the side. Um, but you'll notice that who owns her? Just because she comes from Adam, he doesn't own her. Okay, he doesn't own her. They both rightfully belong to God in the story. And even though parents often say, these are my kids, we have three kids, we don't own our kids. I mean, we've, we discovered that when they were teenagers. <laughs> even if we thought we owned them, they told us otherwise. So, right, amen? Okay, you know that. 
We don't own our kids. Guess what? God owns our kids. God owns the friends, the family that was part of our story. Now, what that all means is that we don't own our bodies. We don't own anything. We are stewards of them. And you can be a good steward where you take care of something based upon the will of the owner. Like if you, someone graciously lets you use a cabin or a, a car or something else, valuable uh, jewelry, you know you're a steward, not the owner. And so what that says is we have to ask the question, what does good stewardship look like of our bodies, of our time, of our breath, of our gifts, our abilities, because we don't own them. Stewardship can be good or stewardship can be bad. Some of you look almost as old as I am. And maybe you remember a movie called Ferris Bueller's Day Off. Remember that movie? I don't know if I recommend it for your family tonight, tonight, but nonetheless, that movie has a great illustration of bad stewardship. Uh, Ferris shows up with this beautiful Ferrari at a parking garage. He hands the keys to this guy and he says, don't worry. Amen? He said, don't worry, it's fine. And then a few seconds later, you see this guy who's the parking attendant and his friend jumping into the Ferrari and jumping over things. Do we have an example of bad stewardship? Amen. Okay, so I'm, I hope that's clear to you. The implication of Genesis then is that our bodies, our time, our gifts, our abilities, the people we love and care about are not ours. These are stewardship moments for us. So our text, other texts support God's ownership. For example, Jeremiah 10, 23. Lord, I know that people's lives are not their own. It is not for them to direct their paths. Job 12, 10. In his hand is the life of every creature and the breath of all mankind. I just love that worship song we sang this morning. It's your what? Breath in my lungs. Right? Isn't that a great text? We could, we could actually add words to that. It's, it's your life in my body it's your like all of these things so Genesis 9 5 declares that from each human being too I will demand an accounting of the life of someone else because when you harm other people you are assuming somehow that their life belongs to you now stewards must ask then am I using what God has given for his redemption story all right that's the first big theological truth I'm going to give you the second truth um, I'm hoping it's up here. Genesis 1, 26 and 27. Um, I'll, I'll read it here. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image and our likeness so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds of the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind or humanity in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Now, we discover in this particular text a view, a something that's unbelievably significant in human history. Like if you go and trace Christian, well, Jewish, and then Christian influence, you will notice society change. Societies change because of this verse. What is it saying about every person? They're in what? The image of God. Image of God, image of God. Sometimes my son Stephen would, you know, when he was living at home, he'd, he actually works at Arasha now, but he would answer the phone and people would start talking to him and then he'd say, I'm sorry, I think you need to talk to my dad. Because his uh, sonorous, uh, beautiful radio voice. Okay, I, maybe I missed all that. But anyway, he, he has been mistaken for me because image language is family language. You have a family resemblance. You have a family resemblance. Now you'll notice that 
This particular text in Genesis is saying, guess what? Every human is supposed to have what? A family resemblance. You have a family resemblance. And frankly, if you mess with my kids, you mess with whom? Me. Right? You mess with my kids, you mess with me. Just ask Mother Bear over in the nursery right now. Right? You don't mess with them. You mess with, you know, because there's a family connection. Now, in the ancient world, image of God language meant value language. If you're in the image of God, you're valuable, you're respected, it's serious. Now, in the ancient world, unfortunately, you'll notice very few people were called in the image of God before this text took over and people started following it. They believed, pagan kings believed that they were in the image of God and maybe their sons were in the image of God. And guess who was valuable? They were. Guess whose life you could not take? Theirs and their sons. Right? But everybody else was not in the image of God and therefore not valuable. You could put them in the army, you could make them slaves, you could take their life, you could do whatever because they're not in the image of God. And in some pagan cultures, they expanded this a little bit to say, okay, maybe men are in the image of God, but not women. Maybe rich are in the image of God, but not poor. Maybe educated, but not uneducated. Maybe, you know, the strong, but not the weak. Now, what is shocking about the Bible, and I hope you hear it, is the Bible gets rid of all of that. And it says, there is no one who is not in the image of God. Male and female, Rich and poor, king and commoner, slave and free, neurodivergent and non-neurodivergent, from every tribe and people and nation. That is the foundation as well as the previous one for the sanctity of all life. So if that's true, then every person, every person's life and body is valuable and has sacred value because they belong to God. Now, the theological implication, of course, are these two things. God owns everything, every body, every human, and we're stewards. And second of all, everyone's a valued image bearer. Now, what are the big implications of this? Well, frankly, I've been hearing a lot of people giving me kind of what I would call the Canadian popular religion. I don't know about you, but there seems to be a popular religion in Canada. Like, it's not like, and even Christians are joining in happily. I'm going to give you three central truths to what I see as the kind of Canadian popular religion. The first one is that in the midst of our diversity, everyone deserves to be happy and celebrated. On the one hand, I don't agree. I don't disagree totally with that. Okay, so don't just get angry. But I'm saying is this seems to be like a big thing. In other words, everybody should have the freedom to pursue whatever makes them feel happy. We should pick jobs that make us, you can say this, happy. We should pick friends that make us Happy. We should um, maybe date and get married if that makes us happy. We should pursue sexual practices that make us happy. All right, so, you know, you even joining groups, like you should join church if it makes you happy, right? Now, being happy is the center of everything in this. And happiness is kind of like a fundamental human right. And we should celebrate that for everyone. Now, the second thing in this Canadian popular religion is that each of us owns our own bodies, our own time, and our own life. And no one else can really know what's right for us, and worse yet, tell us things that we should be doing with our bodies, our time, and our life. Finally, unless uh, we are at the dentist or getting surgery, suffering is really bad. 
Okay, and I know a little bit about this because last October I had emergency appendectomy surgery. Uh, and I had to wait in the waiting room at the hospital emergency for like two and a half hours. Projectile vomiting. Sorry, that's not getting recorded, is it? <laughs> okay. Anyway, I'm just telling you the truth about that scenario. So, but the bottom line here is that unless there's some good reason like surgery or something, suffering is bad. And suffering is somehow not something we should ever have and we should relieve everyone's suffering if possible. Now, all of these claims of Canadian popular religion are partly true. God does not want you profoundly unhappy every day. Oh, great, I'm walking with Jesus. I'm so unhappy. But you'll notice that happiness is not a fruit of the Spirit. Happiness is not a fruit of the Spirit. Joy, which can happen in very unhappy circumstances, is the fruit of the Spirit. Even in the New Testament, some writers say, I was persecuted and we, can, we rejoiced that we were able to be persecuted and in this way for Jesus. So happiness is not a fruit of the Spirit. And uh, joining God's, God's family, you know, this is not, your body is not your own. Your time is not your own. All of these things are not your own. And lastly, suffering can be redemptive. Suffering can actually be your calling. Now, God will sometimes relieve suffering. We might relieve each other's suffering. But suffering is not of the devil at this point. It can be the redemptive way of Jesus in the world. It can produce character. It can be a way of glorifying Jesus in this moment. So what the Bible says then about our topic in, our, in Article 14 is going to show us that Article 14 is going to look crazy for lots of people. It might even look crazy for you. Because I've seen increasingly Christians who are more influenced by what I call Canadian popular religion than they are by the Bible, by the gospel. Canadian popular religion is not the gospel. Pursuing happiness, taking over control of yourself, your body, everything, and trying to avoid all suffering is not the gospel. All right, so we're going to look at Article 14 uh, together, which I hope is up there. And why don't you read it with me? You don't have to stand now because this is not scripture. Okay, get that little subtle difference? Okay, so read it with me. We believe that all human life belongs to God. Each person is created in the image of God and ought to be celebrated and nurtured. Because God is creator, the author and giver of life, we oppose all actions and attitudes which devalue human life. The unborn, disabled, poor, aging, and dying are particularly vulnerable to such injustices. Christ calls the people of all nations to care for the defenseless. God values human life highly. Ultimate decisions regarding life and death belong to God. Therefore, we hold that procedures designed to take life, including abortion, euthanasia, and assisted suicide, are an affront to God's sovereignty. We esteem the life-sustaining findings of medical science, but recognize that there are limits to the value of seeking to sustain life indefinitely. In all complex ethical decisions regarding life and death, we seek to offer hope and healing, support and counsel in the context of the Christian community. Now, so far we've given you two big biblical values. God owns all life, and everybody is in the image of God regardless of their situation. Now, in, in saying all of that, what are the implications of this for us today? What are the implications of these things for us today? We care because of the sanctity of life for what kind of careers? Well, first of all, maybe I should ask you, who are the vulnerable people in our world? 
I think this article has much more to do than simply with a few simple things that don't really affect most of us on a daily basis. So tell me, which people are most vulnerable in our world? Just call them out. Sorry? Babies? Unborn? Who else? Aging? Who else? Homeless folks? Ill folks? I would think indigenous folks? Disabled folks? Women who are in situations of abuse and marginalization? Amen? Newcomers? Sorry? Ukrainians, and especially newcomers to Canada right now that are, that, yeah, they're vulnerable in their situation, and then also newcomers to Canada who are from countries that are not exactly on the most loved list, right? What else? Sorry? Teens. Why, why do you say that? Okay, cool. Anyone else? Yeah, that's what we're going to talk about. That's awesome. Thanks. Awesome. That's what our goal is. So in light of all of this, you'll notice that we as Christians value what kind of careers, what kind of ministries we value deeply. Working with single moms. We value deeply helping folks who are walking through difficult traumatic situations. We welcome, we have communitas, working with special needs uh, mostly adults. We have ministries of seniors' homes, especially in Abbotsford, you'll notice. We want to work better with other vulnerable people, and we haven't always done the best job. Amen? We haven't always done the best job. And when I think about this topic myself, I have a feeling, like, I kind of feel like, Ken, why am I talking about this? Because I feel profoundly unworthy like, I don't know about you, but uh, when I think about some of the situations that happened last year, 765 people in the Fraser Valley died of drug overdose. Now, how long did I spend praying or doing or responding to that? Uh, yeah, I'd like to think I did a lot, but I didn't do very much. These two 22-year-old people, twin boys in, in uh, Saanich, who got shot after, you know, robbing a bank. Like, on the one hand, I don't agree at all with what they did. They caused harm they shot police officers but do I care about them because their life is how valuable it's valuable too and so I, I'm sitting standing here confessing that I want to invite the Holy Spirit to ask me what can I do what how can I show and reflect this theology of the sanctity of life better so I want you to stand with me this is our closing the, the Worship team is going to come up in about four minutes. Is that okay? And so if you just stand and say, like, what have you heard? Is there something prompted in your heart saying, like, how could I be living more faithfully in light of this strong, significant theology about my body, bodies of others, time, energy, etc., for the vulnerable? Give you about four minutes. You should talk. Okay, if you don't talk, it's going to be very awkward in here.